0: It seems like we live in a world where every issue divides us on the extremes, and climate change is no exception. It's killing people and economies, and yet it seems like all we can do is yell at each other about it. My guest this week is trying to change that, one conversation at a time. Dr. Katherine Hayhoe is lead scientist at The Nature Conservancy and author of the new book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World.
1: Despite the COP26 climate talks going into overtime, leaders from across the world walked away from the Scotland summit feeling victorious this weekend. The final agreement aimed at keeping
0: global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius drew applause from delegates.
2: The number one predictor of whether we agree that climate is changing... Humans are responsible and the impacts are increasingly serious and even dangerous has nothing to do with how much we know about science or even how smart we are, but simply where we fall on the political spectrum. Big oil executives testified before House lawmakers Thursday about their alleged role in spreading disinformation on climate change. While some of the oil executives spoke freely about climate change, both Chevron and Exxon CEO denied any role in spreading disinformation.
3: Researchers who are from Harvard University, they published a study today alleging that ExxonMobil tried to systematically mislead the public about climate change for 40 years.
2: Hi, my name is Catherine Hayhoe. I'm a climate scientist and I'm fighting to fix climate change. As long as there is a single ray of hope for a better future,
0: I'm going to keep fighting. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to spend a lot of this interview talking about communicating effectively about science and policy. But before we get there, can you just give us just like a general state of the climate right now?
2: Sure. So it's bad and it's going to get worse, but there is hope. And our future is literally in our hands. It is up to us to decide whether civilization as we know it will continue or whether this is the end of us. It's not about saving the planet. The planet's going to be here long after we're gone. It is about us humans, our civilization, our systems, and a lot of the other living things that share this planet with us.
0: Catherine, I need you to tell people that you're not being hyperbolic.
2: I'm a climate scientist. I've been studying what's happening for 25 years, and I can tell you that we have never seen this much carbon going into the atmosphere this quickly in the history of the planet. Yes, it's been warmer and colder before, but we didn't have 8 billion people on the planet at that time, and we didn't see things changing so quickly. That's what's so unusual about today, is that we are digging up so much coal and gas and oil and burning it, putting so much heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere. We scientists have some knowledge about how things are changing and what the impacts of our choices will be, but there is the potential for some really nasty surprises if we don't get our act together and wean ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible.
0: And is it really going to be a surprise when it feels like we've been having the same conversation for decades? The surprises are when the climate system
2: kicks in with some things that we didn't anticipate. But what we know is happening already today is that climate change is loading the weather dice against us. So it's taking our naturally occurring events like heat waves and hurricanes and wildfires and droughts, which we've always had, as long as there's been humans on this planet, we've had these events, but it's making them worse. So wildfires are burning greater area. The season begins earlier in the year and it ends a lot later. Hurricanes are a lot stronger and dumping way more rain than they used to. Heavy rainfall events are more frequent. Heat waves are more dangerous. Basically, climate change is, as the U.S. military calls it, a threat multiplier. It takes all of the challenges we already face today, and it makes them worse. And what's nearest and dearest to my heart is not just the way it's affecting our weather patterns. It's the fact that it affects the poorest and most vulnerable people more. It affects women and children more than men. Basically, if we already have a bit of the short end of the stick to begin with, then climate change makes it worse, especially in low-income countries. When disaster happens, women and children are the ones who often are more vulnerable, losing their homes, having to pick up and recover afterwards. When a drought hits and a family can't put food on the table and someone comes along and offers to marry their 10-year-old daughter, child marriages are on the increase because of climate change loading the weather dice against us. And then, you know, if you end up in a refugee camp, Who is most vulnerable to everything from assault to not having adequate resources to health-related problems? It's
0: typically women more than men who are vulnerable. In the preface of your book, you write, after thousands of conversations, I'm convinced that the single most important thing that anyone, not just me, but literally anyone, can do to bring people together is, ironically, the very thing we fear most. I think this is so important, but it is really hard. And why are we so afraid of having conversations? We aren't
2: having these conversations. Only about a third of people in the U.S. even hear somebody else talk about it occasionally. Climate change has topped the list of the most politically polarized issues in the whole U.S. since the Obama administration. So we don't want to talk about it because we're afraid we might get in an argument or a fight or... We're just afraid it's so depressing. Who wants to talk about something that's just going to leave you more depressed than when
0: you began? What is the impact on our society and on our planet if we're not having these conversations? The impact is
2: huge because if we just shove something down and we never talk about it, why would we care? And if we don't care, why would we ever fix it? So I think that a lot of the delay that we're seeing is just because we are not having the conversations. About what is the key, not about Antarctica and glaciers and polar bears, but rather conversations about what's happening where we live and how that's affecting things that matter to us, like the air that we breathe and the health of our families and our jobs and the safety of our homes
0: and what real positive, constructive solutions look like that everybody can get on board with. It feels like for many people, and just in general, faith and science are at odds, right? Think about from abortion to evolution to climate change and climate science to vaccines. We see many evangelical Christians in America in particular resisting basically the reality of the world around them. And you are a person of faith and a pastor's wife. How do you think faith influences your conversations with people in these communities?
2: It absolutely influences them. But I would point out, first of all, that there is nothing about the Christian faith that would cause people to reject vaccines, climate change, or even evolution. I'm Canadian myself, and I didn't even meet anyone who thought the world was young or that climate change wasn't real until I moved to the U.S. I grew up in Christian circles. I know many Christians around the world. It really is a U.S. phenomena that's primarily associated with the right-hand side of the political spectrum. But in the United States, the right-hand side of the political spectrum often has a religious label on it. Although today, recent polls are showing that 40% of people who self-identify as evangelical in the U.S. don't even go to church. What church do they go to? They go to the church of the politicians and the pundits who have written their statement of faith, which has very little, if anything, to do with theology and everything to do with politics. So unfortunately for a lot of people, it really isn't about what their theology says. But for those who do care about if they're Christians, for example, if they do care about what the Bible says, then that's often a really great point to begin a conversation. And I, being a Christian, start conversations there. But I also start conversations over being a mom, over living in Texas, over being a Canadian, over being somebody who just absolutely loves the water and snow and lakes Somebody who likes going to the beach and wants there to be beaches in the future, which that is an open question, depending on sea level rise. And someone who loves people, loves things, loves places in this world, as we all do. And every single one of us, because of that, we have every reason we need to care. And if we don't think we care, it's because we haven't connected the dots. And how do we
0: connect the dots? By having those conversations. In your book, you address the online and in-person harassment people are receiving for promoting science. This also applies to accurate teachings of history or basically anything I say on the internet at all. <laughs> Aside from the the automated trolls, which I really do think are a thing, why is this happening? Is there anything those of us who receive it can do to bring those people around?
2: So I get attacked daily online, as I'm sure you do too, and many other people do as well. And before I block someone on Twitter or Facebook, not so much on Instagram, usually people are pretty nice on Instagram, but LinkedIn, definitely. Before I block someone, I always look at who they are. Who was it who just sort of woke up this morning and decided to tell a woman they don't know that she's a fool, an idiot, or a whore?
3: I spent the past three years talking to some of the worst people on the internet. Now, if you've been online recently, you may have noticed that there's a lot of toxic garbage out there. Racist memes, misogynist propaganda, viral misinformation. So I wanted to know who was making this stuff. I wanted to understand how they were spreading it. Ultimately, I wanted to know what kind of impact it might be having on our society. So in 2016, I started tracing some of these memes back to their source, back to the people who were making them or who were making them go viral. I'd approach those people and say, hey, I'm a journalist, can I come watch you do what you do? Now, often the response would be, why in hell would I want to talk to some low T soy boy Brooklyn globalist Jew cuck who's in cahoots with the Democrat Party? To which my response would be Look, man, that's only 57% true. Who is this person?
2: And when I look at their feed, every single time I see that it is part, it is part of a toxic stew of issues. They tend to be anti vax, anti mask, anti immigration. They tend to adhere to the right-hand side of the political spectrum, whether they come from the U.S., my home country of Canada, the U.K. or Australia. People don't wake up in the morning and decide to reject 200 years of physics, the same physics that explains literally how airplanes fly and how stoves heat food. But what do they do? They wake up in the morning and they go to their Facebook feed and they hear from people who agree with them. And so it really is an echo chamber and arguing with people online is not the way to fix it.
0: Knowing that doesn't make it any less hurtful, whether it be to the planet or to our own souls and hearts.
2: You're absolutely right. And so that's why when I decided to engage on social media and to keep engaging on social media, despite all the hate, I had to sit down and make a decision, a decision I sort of reaffirmed to myself on a pretty regular basis, that what they say about me isn't who I am. They don't know me and they're not saying it because they want to know me. They're saying it because they see me, they see us as a threat. And as long as they see us as a threat, they're not going to listen to anything we say. So there's no point engaging with somebody who's hurling abuse to you at law, online. But if we're able to connect over something we share, not a threat, the exact opposite, something we love, if we can make that point of connection, that's where the positive, constructive conversations come from.
0: Do you think that the, that the attacks are having an effect on people thinking about or entering the sciences or speaking publicly about scientific findings?
2: Absolutely. It's not easy to wake up every morning and see your inbox or your social media feed just filled with hate. It is for sure turning people off and causing them to sort of retreat back into the ivory tower. But for every person who feels that way, I know another, at least one, if not more people, are doing the exact opposite who are just digging in their heels and saying this is the truth and this is our future we're fighting for and i am not going to give up sorry not sorry thank
0: you tell us about science overload and what we can do to avoid it while still communicating important information
2: so often when we feel like people aren't on board with climate action we think they just need more fear-based facts and like we started off the podcast There are plenty of fear based facts that are absolutely 100% true, no exaggeration. In fact, if anything, we scientists tend to sort of go a bit on the conservative side, if you can believe it. But the reality is, 70% of people in the United States are already worried about climate change. 70%. 83% of moms are worried. 84% of young people are worried. We're already worried. So, what's the problem? The problem is, fully half of us feel hopeless and helpless when it comes to climate change. What do we most lack? We most lack a sense of agency, a sense of hope. What can I do to make a difference? And so that's exactly why I wrote my book, Saving Us, because I am absolutely convinced that every single one of us has a role to play. And it begins with using our voice to advocate for change in every part of the world that we're connected to, our school, our place of work, our neighborhood, wherever it is that we connect with people, using our voice to say, here's why it matters and here's what
0: we can do to fix it. Your book brings up two things that I had forgotten. First, in the 1990s, a poll was released that showed more Republicans than Democrats believed that climate change was already happening. And second, that as recently as 2008, Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich filmed a commercial together talking about the need to fight climate change. Are we as divided as we think we are? Those
2: are stunning facts for most people because today we are so polarized. Hi,
1: I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree. Our country must take action
2: to address climate change.
1: We need cleaner forms of energy and we need them fast. If enough of
2: us demand action from our leaders, we can spark the innovation we need.
1: Go to wecansolveit.org. Together, we can do this. The U.S. is more polarized
2: than it's ever been in, in our lifetimes. And I can say are because we were born in the same year. So, what happened? Did the science change in the last 20 years? No. If anything, it just became more solid. We can put numbers on how much greater area was burned by wildfires and how much more rain was dumped by hurricanes because of climate change. What changed? The fact that the impacts were here and now, which means we have to do something about it. And doing something about it consists primarily of weaning ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible. 90 companies produced two thirds of carbon emissions since the dawn of the industrial era, 90 companies. And when climate action loomed up on the horizon, they made a conscious decision. Many of those companies decided, the ones that were still in existence, decided it is a lot cheaper to muddy the waters, to confuse people, to say, oh, those scientists aren't sure, and to get together with politicians and say, look at how much of the revenue in your district or your personal income comes from coal, gas, and oil. It would be foolish to invest in climate action. Look at the detriment it would have on your finances. Reality is, if we don't fix climate change, there will be no economy. There will be no finances. There will be no one wanting to use energy because we will not have any civilization left. So even, they, even those people who are so invested in fossil fuels, long-term, even for them, it makes all the sense in the world to transition to clean energy. But unfortunately, some didn't. And there's this really good book that's also been turned into a documentary. It's called Merchants of Doubt. And it tracks exactly how the big oil and gas companies specifically and deliberately and very intelligently set out to muddy the waters on climate change, confuse us and politicize an issue which is not political at all. Because a thermometer does not give you a different answer depending on how you vote. And a wildfire does not knock on your door and ask you who you voted for president before it burns
0: down your house. That's right. And I have to believe that fossil fuel industries, oil and gas industries have already invested in alternative energy technology. So it feels as though, because, you know, we've been having this conversation for how many decades now? So it feels as though they are actually preventing us from progress and taking the entire planet down with it. Because you cannot tell me That they have not already made substantial investments in alternative energy technology. There's no way. Because the writing's been on the wall forever. And these corporations have seen that. And I guarantee you, they've been like, oh, you know what? We should probably uh, figure out some alternative energy resources. If people wind up doing the right thing and writing legislation and policy on the climate crisis, we should probably have a plan B in place, right? Oh. They totally do. In fact, all the big oil and gas companies have been
2: operating with a shadow price on carbon for over a decade. They've been waiting for a price on carbon like they have in Canada, and as soon as it's in place, they have a plan. But until there's that price on carbon, they're gonna keep on going their merry way.
3: To bring carbon emissions under control,
2: more and more leaders now agree with one thing.
1: We must go further. We must strive for more. A two-step approach is needed to reduce
3: CO2 emissions by 2030 by 50, if not 55%. The simplest way to do this is through a tax on carbon. If carbon-intensive activities and products become more expensive, we'll consume less of them, and emissions will be lower than otherwise.
2: And that is why our voices are
0: so important, and policies are so important, and voting is so important. You have a whole section in your book called, Is Fear Useful? When I see messaging from the right, it tends to be fear-driven and exploits the fear of change people in power tend to have. From the left, it tends to be more aspirational, and that seemed to be less effective. Why doesn't messaging the fear of changing climate seem to be working? It's because we don't know what to do with that fear.
2: So fear wakes us up. Fear is the the wellspring of action. If we aren't afraid of something, why would we do anything about it? But once we're awakened, we need something to do. And like I just said, most people in the U.S. are worried, but half of us feel helpless and hopeless. We don't know what
0: to do. So that's why fear has not worked. The U.N. recently hosted COP26, its climate summit. I suspect a lot of people don't really know what was agreed To there. And what happens next? Can you talk a bit about the agreement? I can because I just got
2: back from there. (laughs) So we have to go all the way back to 1992, though. That's when every country in the world got together in Rio de Janeiro and they agreed to prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system. Then they spent 25 years arguing over what was dangerous. Why? Because it's a value judgment. Science can tell us what happens as the world warms by one or two or three degrees, but what's considered dangerous depends on us, right? Our priorities. And unfortunately, the short-term economic gain of a few at the expense of the lives of the many is what has taken priority up until now. So in 2015, all the countries went back to Paris for the 21st meeting after that initial decision to prevent dangerous human interference. COP21, and they agreed to limit warming to below two degrees Celsius, which is three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, and below one and a half degrees Celsius if they could. So now here we are going, just getting home from Glasgow, which was COP26. What happened there? Before COP26, we only had enough commitments from the high emitting countries to limit warming to below 2.7 degrees Celsius. That's not enough. We needed more. That's why I think of the COPs as like a potluck dinner every country shows up with their different contribution. Some of them are investing in efficiency or clean energy or price on carbon or nature-based solutions. So it's like one country shows up with a fresh baked apple pie. You cut into it and it's just full of hot air. Another country shows up with a single frozen fish finger they dragged out of the back of the freezer. Another country like Costa Rica or Bhutan. They show up with this fresh homemade pasta salad with homemade dressing. And we get to see what all the different countries are doing and how they have to up their contributions so that we have enough on the table. So that's what COP was about. And if you include the net zero targets, we do have enough promised. It isn't on the table yet, but they signed the sign-up list to say
0: that they would bring it. And that's a big step forward. And national governments still have to agree to the framework and allocate funding. Do you think that's going to happen? And, and if it doesn't, like, for example, will the U.S. Senate go along? And what happens if we do not? That's exactly it. Countries can promise, they can sign
2: up, but then they have to go home and collect the ingredients. And in the United States, the primary ingredients of this administration are the infrastructure bill, which has already passed, and the Build Back Better bill, which has not
1: when we were there, people were very glad that America was back, as President Biden said. Uh, they were pleased that the bill uh, the other bill had passed the that had passed the House, but they're very very eager about this bill which makes it happen for us in terms of preserving the planet and doing so by lowering costs for families, by reducing pollution by 50% by 2030, by creating good-paying union jobs and to do so with equity. And if it doesn't pass,
2: the United States is not going to have the apples that it
1: promised
0: in its pie. In the book, one of the ways you suggest framing the discussion about climate change to Americans is by sharing the health benefits of reducing it. Can you share some of those with our listeners?
2: People don't realize often the price that we pay for using fossil fuels. So air pollution from burning fossil fuels alone, especially coal, which is very dirty is responsible for almost 9 million premature deaths per year and 2 million premature births. That is double the amount of COVID deaths in 2020. More than double. It is absolutely insane. And it's happening every single year. And so when people say, oh, we can't stop using fossil fuels. It's too expensive. I'm like, what price do you put on 9 million lives a year? Air pollution is responsible for all kinds of health issues in addition to directly impacting people's lives. It affects risks of dementia in older adults. It affects learning disabilities and babies and children who are exposed to air pollution. There is every reason in the world to stop using coal today just from the health impacts alone. Oh, and then also, of course, it produces a ton of carbon emissions too. So the health of the planet is our health. And we saw that during COVID. It really makes sense to invest in Reducing fossil fuel emissions as much as we can, as soon as we can, because it helps with our health. Oh, and it helps with climate change too. And then, of course, it helps with all the health impacts of climate change, like decreasing the nutritional quality of food and increasing the risk of waterborne diseases and increasing the risk of political instability, which leads to refugee crises. And what's the first thing to go? Public health and education. Those are the first two things to go whenever there's political instability and refugee crises. And so then, especially if you're a woman, something like having a baby turns into a life-threatening event if you have nothing, no basic medical services at all.
1: All
0: right, so let's talk more about the solutions. Let's just focus on my listeners right now. What actions can individuals take to protect the climate while governments change policy? We have an incredibly
2: important role to play. And when I went to Glasgow, what was so interesting was, yes, there were heads of government there and there were policy experts and negotiators there. But most of the people there were just people. There were children and parents and grandparents. There were activists and students. There were young people and artists and musicians and theologians and business people and people who cared about trees and people who cared about water and indigenous people and marginalized communities were there raising their voice because, of course, they're affected more than anyone. They were people. And here's the thing. When we look back through the last two, three hundred years of our society and our civilization. We've changed in massive ways. Slavery has been abolished. Civil rights have been enacted. Women got the vote, which is a bigger deal than we remember. Apartheid ended. How did these things change? It wasn't when a president or a prime minister or a CEO or a very rich, influential, famous person just recited one morning they had to and made it happen. It was when very ordinary people, some of whom we know their names, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Elizabeth Cady Stanton. We know some of their names, but most of their names we don't know. They were ordinary people, and they decided the world has to change. It must change. And they did something that every single one of us can do. They used their voice. They used their voice to advocate for change. And through using their voice, they shared that vision, and they shared that need for action with everyone around them. And those people joined in too. And that's what our kids are doing today, aren't they? They're using their voices to talk about why the world must change. And every single one of us can do that. And we can affect change where we live, where we work, any organization that we're part of, a school that we attend. We can catalyze change. And we do that by using our voice. Only about 60% of people think that it will affect people in the United States. Only 40% of people think it will affect us personally personally. And then when you ask people, do you ever talk about this, two-thirds of people in the entire United States say never. And even worse, when you say, do you hear the media talk about this, over three-quarters of people say no. Sometimes it might be posting something. Sometimes it might be creating something. Sometimes it might just be doing something where other people can see us do it. But the influence we have on people is much greater than our footprint. It's not just about our carbon
0: footprint. It's about our climate shadow. It's interesting because it really does feel like there is such a generational divide as well as a political divide with so much of this. And I'm wondering why you think that is. That's a great
2: question. And we see this in Republicans, where young Republicans care about it a lot more than older ones. We see it in people who identify as Christian here in the U.S. There are 25,000 young evangelicals for climate action who are staging die-ins in front of the White House for, for climate action. I just feel like young people get it. What matters is not the money, the economy, the accumulation of goods. What matters is being able to breathe clean air, to be able to walk through nature, drink clean water, have enough food to eat. What matters is justice. And climate change is profoundly a justice issue. That's what really matters. And I feel like young people get that. What do you think? Will we survive climate change? The planet will survive. Humans will survive. The question is, will human civilization survive? And the answer to that question is up to us. It really is up to us. Our future is in our hands, and every single one of us has a role to play that begins by using our voice as a catalyst for action. And finally, what gives you hope? That is the number one question that I get asked almost every single day for the last five years. And in fact, that's why I wrote the book. What gives me hope? What gives me hope is recognizing that climate action is not a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of an impossibly steep cliff with only a few hands on it. And it's not budging an inch. And if I add my hand, it won't make any difference. No, climate action, that giant boulder, it's already at the top of the hill and it's already rolling down the hill in the right direction. And it already has millions of hands on it. And when I add my hand, it will go a little faster. And when we add our hands, it will go even faster. We are not alone. There are children, again, young people, parents, grandparents, senior citizens. There are people in the business community, people in the entertainment community, people in every place around this country and around the world who care passionately about this issue, who are making a difference. And when we look around and we realize how many people are already acting, and when we act ourselves, that's where we find hope. I think it was Joan Baez that said the
0: antidote to despair, it's action. Catherine Hayhoe, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me.
3: If that persuasive appeal that you're making to your Republican uncle means that he doesn't just have to change his view, he's got to change his underlying values, too, that's not going to go very far. So what would work better? Well, we believe it's a technique that we call moral reframing and we've studied it in a series of experiments. In one of these experiments, we recruited liberals and conservatives to a study where they read one of three essays before having their environmental attitudes surveyed. And the first of these essays was a relatively conventional pro-environmental essay that invoked the liberal values of care and protection from harm. It said things like, in many important ways, we are causing real harm to the places we live in, and It is essential that we take steps now to prevent further destruction from being done to our Earth. Another group of participants were assigned to read a really different essay that was designed to tap into the conservative value of moral purity. It was a pro-environmental essay as well, and it said things like, keeping our forests, drinking water and skies pure is of vital importance. We should regard the pollution of the places we live in to be disgusting. And reducing pollution can help us preserve what is pure and beautiful about the places we live. Then we had a third group of participants that were assigned to read just a non-political essay. It was just a comparison group, so we could get a baseline. And what we found when we surveyed people about their environmental attitudes afterwards, we found that liberals didn't really matter what essay they read. They tended to have highly pro-environmental attitudes regardless. Liberals are on board for environmental protection. Conservatives, however, were significantly more supportive of progressive environmental policies and environmental protection if they had read the Moral Purity essay than if they read one of the other two essays.
0: We all do it. We all consume the news and information that we want to hear, and we communicate that in an increasingly broken way. Social media platforms exacerbate this problem, driving huge profits off of exploiting And worsening this divide. It's killing us. It has to stop. We need to have conversations, uncomfortable conversations with people we disagree with. We need to talk instead of shout and listen instead of demand. Even when we are entirely positive, we are right. What's more, we need to elect people who will do the same. We will never make any progress, we will never save any lives unless we're willing to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I always ask each of my guests what gives them hope to close an interview. And I do that because the world can feel hopeless. I look at the Paul Gossers and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, and I look at the people protesting at vaccine clinics, and I can feel hopeless because what is broken in what they represent is so hard to fix. But it can be done. And if the experts I have on this show, who live in these conflicts every day, can find hope, so can the rest of us. Hang in there. Keep talking. We'll find our way through. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Buliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.